songs that we've been privileged to sing, the opportunity to pray, to study from his word, and also to partake of the Lord's Supper. And tonight we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Not long ago I was asked if I would present a lesson that had to do with miracles. And there are probably a lot of different passages that could be taken to discuss the subject of the miraculous or the signs that were performed in the first century. But I want us to look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 as we think about the signs of the Savior. And here John writes, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There are three things that I want us to consider in our study tonight. First, we look at the Messiah or the Savior, because after all, John said, truly, Jesus did. There were a lot of things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. And sometimes it helps us to put into perspective his ministry by looking at his life. And as we think about the Messiah, the Savior, first of all, I would call attention to the prophecies that were penned about Jesus. The Old Testament points us in the direction of the Messiah, the Son of God. And of course, Jesus was aware of the fact that the Old Testament writers pointed to his coming. Jesus, on a number of occasions, alluded to the fact that those who had written the Old Testament, Moses, those who penned the Psalms, and those who were considered prophets, that they foretold of his coming. And really, we could go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Moses, of course, was the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses pointed to the coming of the promised seed, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, in the book of John, we have an account in John chapter 1 of Philip finding Nathanael. And he said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, here was testimony given to Nathanael that Jesus was indeed the one of whom the Old Testament writers pointed. Now in John chapter 5, Jesus would say on one occasion, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life. They are they which testify of me. And in that same chapter, he would allude to the fact that Moses wrote about him. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, they believed in Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel. They trusted his words. They looked to him as an esteemed leader among the Jewish ancestry. And yet Jesus pointed out that Moses in the long ago had written about him. Now you can look at Luke chapter 24 in verse 44. And before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written about me in the law of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the prophets. And so here Jesus reminds the apostles, the disciples, 
that those things that had been penned about him, they were indeed true. And no doubt they came to pass. Now, I said just a moment ago that in Genesis 3.15, there is the statement made about the promised seed. And in Genesis chapter 12, there is the promise made to Abraham that in him all families of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 49 verse 10, there is an allusion to the coming of Christ and he would descend from or through the tribe of Judah. And as we think about the tribe, the family that Jesus would emerge through or come through, we know that in reading 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, he would come through the family of David. And David was the great king over the United Kingdom. David was one of the great men of God. He was a man after God's own heart. And then in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah talks about how Jesus would be born of the virgin. And he talks about how Jesus would be identified as Emmanuel, that being God with us. In Genesis 9, verse 6, he would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 53, he is identified as the Suffering Servant. And so all of these passages point to the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament is really the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, it's made known. What was written in the Old Testament is made known, verified. It came to pass and was recorded in the New Testament. But now I want you to think with me for just a moment about the purpose of Jesus. We talk about the prophecies that were penned about Jesus, but what about his purpose? Why did Jesus come to earth? Do you remember what John the Immerser, John the Baptizer said as recorded by John the Apostle in chapter 1? When John the Baptist saw Jesus on one occasion, he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist had it right. Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 9, he would taste of death for every man. Now in looking to the gospel of John, it's apparent that Jesus understood his, his role, his mission in coming to planet earth. He understood that he was to come and bear the sins of the human family. In John chapter 3, we have Jesus engaged in an extended discussion with Nicodemus, one of the great rulers among the Jews. Nicodemus was a ruler among the Jews. He was a Pharisee. And Jesus told him that he needed to be born again. But in verse 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he said, this is condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why did Jesus come to earth? So that you and I might enjoy the blessings of salvation. Jesus, after all, in John chapter 3, takes those of us who are readers of this gospel back to the events that took place in Numbers chapter 21. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus understood he was to die on the cross. He would give himself as a ransom for sin. He would redeem us by his blood. And the gospel of Christ makes that abundantly clear. And then in John chapter 10, at verse 10, Jesus would say, I am come that they might have life 
and have it more abundantly. You want a good life? You want an abundant life? You want a life that is filled with the riches of Christianity? Then get in Christ. Jesus can give you an abundant life. But in verse 11 he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In John chapter 12, Jesus would say, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. Again, alluding to his crucifixion. Alluding to the fact that he would bear our sins on Calvary. And so, over and over again, we read of the purpose of Jesus. And I would, I would simply point out that when Jesus went to the cross, he had you in mind. Every single person is important in God's redemptive plan. There are no big eyes and little U's. Each and every one of us are important in the eyes of Almighty God. I believe if, if you were the only person to have ever lived on planet Earth, God would have loved you enough to have sent his son to die for your sins. And so really, when we talk about the purpose of Jesus and the fact that Jesus came to Earth, we need to take that in a very personal way. You remember when Paul wrote to the saints in Galatia and he said, I've been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live, I live by faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul believed that the death of Christ was a personal thing. It ought to be a personal thing to us. We ought to realize that the love of God extended to each and every one of us in a very personal way. Now, consider with me, if you would, in the second place, the miracles or the signs that are recorded in the book of John. When we talk about the miracles or the signs, we are talking about those things that were extraordinary in nature. And we have the demonstration of the miracles. Now, in the book of John, in the gospel of John, there are seven signs recorded by the apostles. John is, of course, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The other inspired writers, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they too recorded a number of the signs or miracles that Jesus performed while on planet Earth. John, however, catalogs for us seven very specific signs. I believe that each and every sign had a purpose. And we could go back and we could look at some of the other signs that were recorded for us by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the signs that have been performed by Jesus and recorded by John, they have a definitive purpose. Now let me just very quickly walk you through some of the signs that are, the signs that are recorded in the Gospel of John. In chapter 2, we read of the first sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. It was at a marriage feast. And there Jesus turned water into wine. And in verse 11, the Bible says this was the first miracle that Jesus performed, and that being in Cana of Galilee. And the Bible says he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, we'll get to this in just a moment. But really, when you look at the signs, what they did, they authenticated the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Here is Jesus, and he is saying during his earthly ministry, I'm the Son of God. I have come forth from the Father. Well, how do you verify that? How do you, how do you give credibility to those statements? Well, you back it up with something, don't you? And one of the things that he did in order to back up his claims, he performed the miraculous. And so, 
On this occasion, Jesus turned water to wine, and thus, as John records for us, he manifested forth his glory. Now, back in John chapter 1, verse 14, there's an interesting statement made by John the Apostle concerning the Word, that being the second member of the Godhead. In verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, down in verse 14, he said, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Now listen to him. He said, and we beheld his glory. Think about all the things that Jesus said and did. Did they not lend evidence to the fact that he was who he claimed to be? That is the second member of the Godhead, the Son of God. Jesus was God's only begotten Son. And then in chapter 4, we have the second miracle that was performed by Jesus. The first miracle that was performed by him no doubt demonstrated his power over matter. Here is Jesus taking water and turning it into wine and not just some kind of wine but as John records, the best wine. And I would underscore the nature of the quality of the wine that Jesus turned from water. But then we think about it in John chapter 4, the fact that Jesus healed a nobleman's son. Jesus was not present when this miracle occurred. In other words, he was not standing at the bedside of this young man when he was healed. Jesus was in Cana, and this sick boy was in Capernaum to the north of him. What did Jesus do? Well, he healed this fellow. A distance of some 20 miles, and yet, what does that do? It demonstrates his power over, over sickness, over illness, and also, we think about the fact that with regard to distance, it wasn't a problem for the Lord to simply speak the word and this young fellow be healed. There is a third miracle that was performed by Jesus, as recorded by John the Apostle, and that is in chapter 5, he healed a man that had been lame. The Bible tells us this man had been a crippled man for about 38 years. Again, we think about Jesus demonstrating his power over disability or disease. Jesus would say to this young man or this man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, that's an astounding fact. When you, when you begin to, to take into consideration the great miracles that Jesus is performing, he's showing his power over matter. He's showing his power over disease, over illness, over disability. And really, time means nothing. We talk about people today that have been sick for years and years and years. And typically, when you look at people, their illness does what? It progresses, doesn't it? Well, that, that didn't pose a problem for Jesus. Just because this, this man had been sick for 38 years did not mean that the Lord didn't have the power to heal him. He did. Fourthly, that is the fourth sign that Jesus, Jesus performed, recorded by John in chapter 6. Here we find Jesus taking five barley loaves and two fish and feeding some 5,000 men from these small remnants of food. Some would say that the five barley loaves and the two fish that this young lad had, this young boy had, would have been enough for a sack meal. And yet here is Jesus feeding the multitudes again. I believe demonstrating his power over matter. And we note the quantity 
We think about the quality of the wine that Jesus, that, that Jesus uh, made from water. But here we think about the quantity, the vast multitudes of people that were fed by the Savior. And then in chapter 6, we're introduced to another miracle. We find Jesus walking on the sea. Now let me tell you what, there are a lot of miracles that were performed by Jesus and I believe that each and every miracle stands on its own, carries its own weight. But can you imagine seeing somebody walk on the sea? Luke tells us about an occasion when Jesus stilled the winds and the waves. And those who were present, were they, they were astounded. They marveled. And they asked the question, who can this be? Why? Because the winds and the waves obey him. So here's Jesus, the Son of God, demonstrating his power over natural law. I don't know of anybody that can walk on water. I know some people that may think they can walk on water, but I don't know anybody that can. Well, Jesus could. And then in chapter 9, Jesus took a man that had been born blind and gave him sight. That was a tremendous miracle. Again, we think about his power over disease, disability. We talk about people today with disabilities. I think about Helen Keller, a young girl who grew to womanhood. She was blind. She was deaf. The great things that she did, but she couldn't see. Here was a man that was born blind, and yet Jesus healed him. Jesus gave this man sight. And then, seventhly, the seventh miracle or sign Jesus performed. In chapter 11, we find the Son of God raising Lazarus from the dead. It's almost as if, as John writes about these miracles, they're building in, in nature or stature. And you get to chapter 11, and there is this what I would call crescendo where you have Lazarus dying and the sisters of Lazarus coming to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Martha first approached Jesus and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, she also came to Jesus and echoed the same sentiments. Jesus, as you well know, as John narrates this story, went to the tomb of Lazarus. And what did he do? He told those people present on that occasion to remove the stone. Their response, Lord, he's been dead for four days. They understood that his body was already undergoing decomposition. And so they said, Lord, he will stink. That, that's really what they were saying. Here's a man been dead four days. He's in the tomb. We know his body's undergoing decomposition. And you want us to remove the stone? that covers the mouth of the tomb, and the Lord, of course, would say, absolutely. So they did that, and here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible tells us Lazarus came forth. That miracle produced belief among many of those people present, but sadly, some walked away, determined to kill him, and they remained in a state of unbelief. But you just look at all of these miracles. 
seven distinct miracles or signs performed by Jesus. Each and every miracle demonstrating the fact that he was the son of God. Now, we talk about the miracles and the fact that they lended credibility to his claims. What, what's the worst thing that you could imagine happening to an individual? Well, to me, physically speaking, death. And yet, what did Jesus do? He demonstrated his power over death. Time and again, Jesus demonstrated his power over every realm of life. We talk about his power over matter, his power over nature, his power over disease, his power over disability, his power over death, and yes, his power over the demonic realm. In Mark chapter 5, we read about a man who was demon-possessed. And apparently he had a lot of unclean spirits residing within him. And Jesus commanded those unclean spirits to come forth. And in so doing, I believe that that was testimony that Jesus was greater in power than the demons. There is no realm where the Son of God does not reign victorious. And so we look at the demonstration of the miracles. But now I want you to consider with me, if you would, the duration of the miracles. Why were the miracles performed? There are a lot of people today that have difficulty comprehending the nature of miracles. There are a lot of people today that have the idea that miracles are ongoing. There are bumper stickers that you'll see from time to time that say miracles still exist. Well, is that true? Here's my take on what the scriptures have to say. The miracles performed by Jesus and the apostles and those on whom the apostles laid hands, they were for a specific purpose. The purpose was to confirm the word based on Mark 16 verse 20. Jesus told the apostles and you well know that in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus told the apostles they would be endued with power from on high. They received the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. They had the ability to perform the miraculous. The apostles had the ability to lay hands on others, and they could perform miracles. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you have the enumeration of the miraculous. That is, the enumeration of the gifts. In chapter 13, you have the duration of those gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, Paul said, whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there be knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. You and I, we have that which is perfect. What is that which is perfect? It's called the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, the law of Christ. Once we, once we got completed revelation, that is, the 27 books of the New Testament, there was no further need for the miraculous. The miracles were given, or rather the miracles were intended to confirm the word, that is, to lend credibility to those who were speaking to those who were preaching the gospel. And so once, once we received completed revelation, there was no need for those miracles. 
So today when people talk about the ability to perform miracles, you need to understand that the scriptures teach us that that age has long since passed away. When the apostles died and those men on whom they laid hands died, that meant the cessation of all spiritual gifts. They're over, they're done with. So today we have completed revelation. Now, listen again to what John said in verse 30. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. We're talking about the miracles that John recorded. John, as I said a moment ago, he recorded seven very specific, very distinct signs, a purpose behind recording those signs. So having said that, let's look now thirdly at the message. This has to do with the scriptures. Look again at verse 30. John said, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Two things here. First of all, the proliferation of signs not recorded. John said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. What book? He's talking about the Gospel of John. There were a lot of signs, miracles that Jesus performed that were not recorded by John. I would imagine that there were a lot of signs recorded or rather performed by Jesus that were not recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus had the ability to perform the miraculous. The reason we have the miracles recorded, as I said a moment ago, to authenticate his claims. Jesus performed the miraculous so that people would believe his testimony that he came forth from God. Read John chapter 5. We have a record of the signs that God wanted us to have. Now, secondly, first we think about the proliferation of signs not recorded, but then the purpose of the signs recorded. Now I want you to listen again to what John said. Truly, Jesus did many of the signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Number one, when we talk about the purpose of the signs recorded, there is what I would call the development of faith. Now you remember, remember we're talking about the Gospel of John here. And John is telling us that the signs that have been written have been written with a purpose in mind. What is that purpose? The development of faith. John wants readers of all ages to weigh the evidence. In other words, you and I, we take the testimony that has been recorded. You remember what Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Can I know there is a God? Absolutely. How do I know there's a God? By, by creation. Creation is testimony. There's a God. The Hebrew writer said, every house is built by some man. He that built all things is God. Hebrews 3, 4. So I can know there's a God. But in order for me to know the mind of God, in order for me to understand the distinctive members of the Godhead, that being God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what do I need? I need revelation. In order for me to appreciate the Christ, the Son of God, the fact that he came, lived, and died, I need to understand that there is the importance of revelation. The Bible says we're to walk by faith and not by sight. So I have to have 
and understanding of Scripture in order for me to develop faith in Jesus, the Son of God. So these signs have been written, why? To produce faith. In other words, so that I might come to an understanding that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, let me just pause here and make, make, make this observation. You have, you have before you the inspired word of God. Paul said every scripture is inspired of God. Every book in the Bible, the 39 books in the Old Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament, each and every book is inspired by Almighty God. They are God-breathed. And God has given us this book as a roadmap, as a guide. God wants us to read, to meditate, to study this book, and then to begin drawing some conclusions. So here's what you have to do. Let's just take, for example, the Gospel of John, what we're talking about right now. You have to read the Gospel of John. You've got to, you've got to put under the microscope the 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. You can read the seven I am statements by Jesus in the Gospel of John. You can read about the seven miracles of Jesus as recorded by John. Every, every single chapter that you read says Jesus is who he claims to be. That is, he's the son of God. Remember what John the Baptist said in John chapter one? Truly this man, what? He's the son of God. John the Immerser came to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Well, you've got to draw some conclusions. So you read about the signs, you read about the nature of Christ, you read about the good deeds that he performed. You listen to what the testimony says about him. You remember in John 7 verse 46 when somebody said, when those people of his day said, no man ever spoke like this man? Let me tell you what, you know why they said that? Because no one had ever spoken like Jesus. They had never seen anybody like him. They had never heard anybody like him. So you've got to take this evidence and you've got to weigh it. And you've got to come to a conclusion about what you think regarding Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus, as I said a moment ago, fed multitudes of people. And he used that great miracle to declare himself to be the bread of life. Many of the people that heard that statement went back and walked no more with him. Jesus asked the question, will you also go away? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And he said, we have come to believe. I would emphasize that. Peter said, we have come to believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me tell you what, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. When you take this evidence and you begin to weigh it, you will come to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. That's the son of God. That is that's the purpose of this book. So, the development of faith. What do you say about Jesus? You remember in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, who that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Jesus asked the question, but whom do you say that I am? That's what you and I have to decide. What do we think about Jesus? It's important that we develop faith. And then secondly, the delight of faith. Why is it a great thing to come to an obedient faith? Well, listen to what, listen to what John said. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
If you don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, if you have not obeyed him, you do not have life. There are a lot of folks in our world today, they are selling what I call a false bill of goods. There are a lot of folks in our world today that tell you it doesn't matter who you believe in. There are people today saying you can believe in Muhammad. In other words, you can be a follower of Islam. You can be a follower of Buddha. You can follow any and everyone you want to follow. And you'll still end up in heaven. Let me tell you what Jesus said. The Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way we have any hope of life eternal is through Jesus, the Son of God. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No wonder that Roman centurion cried out when Jesus was crucified, truly this man was a son of God. That's what we need to come to understand. Jesus is the son of God and that he is our link to life eternal. If we'll obey him, we'll have life eternal. What do we need to do to become a child of God? We've got to be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way we can get into the kingdom is, be, is by being baptized into Christ. Our baptism is preceded by faith in Jesus, John 8, 21. Repentance, Luke 13, 3. Confession, Matthew 10, 32. When we're baptized into Christ, we become a member of the church of Christ, Acts 2, 47. We need to be in the church of Christ because that's where the redeemed reside, Ephesians 5, verse 23. And if we're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ, I want to encourage you to come home tonight. I would appeal to you tonight, don't leave this assembly without making things right with a loving God. The Bible tells us God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Would you come as we stand and sing?